Well, good morning, Seven Mile Road. This officially is our 23rd Sunday gathering in this manner. And I got to say, it's 23 more than I'm comfortable with. Uh, I long to see you and I miss you. I want to let you know that we have an elder meeting this Wednesday. We'll be praying and continuing to process about what it looks like for us to regather. We are also nearing what has been a long uh, process of, of negotiating a contract for the Joplin campus, which is just across the parking lot of St. Thomas, uh, where we anticipate will be our home in the future and for the foreseeable future. And so I say all that to say this. Would you please pray for your leaders? Pray that we'd have wisdom and clarity and the favor of God, and that as soon as possible and appropriate, we would be back together again. And until then, here I stand to declare to you the Word of God through this camera. We are continuing in a study of the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, by way of reminder, is a leader that God has called. It's 440 BC, 140 years after Jerusalem had been destroyed and the people of God were exiled in accordance with God's word. And 140 years later, God has called this man who is serving in the Persian Empire to leave comfort and stability and all of the favor that he had there to travel to Jerusalem for the work of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem for the good of God's people. I just want to make this this note, this point of awareness as we're continuing to journey in this book, that this is a book about a really bold and powerful, catalytic, entrepreneurial leader. And so as we make sense of this text, a lot of it is going to lend itself towards applying to points and places like that. And I just want to give a word of encouragement and reminder to all of us. Ultimately, God's kingdom is most consistently coming to bear in the world through simple obedience of everyday people, through all of us offering all of our gifts. And so I'm going to labor to continue to apply this text in a way that that makes sense of and informs all of our lives. But I also just want to continue to be aware of the fact that it's also speaking to us in the ways that we have leadership and the ways that we have stewardship of responsibility and authority over others. And so we're going to see that again today as we keep moving. Well, in weeks one and two, we saw that there was a calling placed on Nehemiah's life, and calling was this combination of burden and prayer and position. And then we saw that courage takes calling and it turns it into action, taking that first step and having a grand vision for where this, this journey might take us. And as we step into week three, what we're going to see is this, that when you take a first step in courage, when your calling starts to translate into action, it is going to require that you begin to count the cost. That you don't just think about the first step and the grand vision, but you actually consider the path that is going to have to be walked if this calling is going to come to bear on the world. It reminds me of a year or two ago, it was just after I think we had watched March Madness, my boys decided alongside of me that it was time for us to buy a basketball goal for our driveway. So we went to Academy Sports and I picked out a basketball goal and on the, on the sign right there it said, uh, assembly required beginner level. <laughs> well, I bought that basketball goal. I brought it home. I started to unpack it because, you know, I'm a beginner. I can handle beginner stuff. And as I spread out hundreds of pieces and I pulled out a manual that was pretty thick and had uh, a couple of hundred steps for assembly, I actually made it. This is a true story. I made it to step number two and I got stuck because <laughs> I didn't have the right tools. 
I didn't have the strength to prop the stuff up by myself. I didn't have the right team in place. I wasn't prepared at all. And so I had strewn all across my lawn, hundreds of pieces and all of this stuff, this grand vision of what I was going to accomplish, but I had not counted the cost. I'll just declare it publicly. My friend Denver McAllister came to the rescue that day. Thank you, Denver. Uh, And we ended up getting that goal built, but not in the way that I had intended or thought because I did not count the cost. What we're going to see together today is this, that any task that we're stepping into, any task that we're stepping into, those that God is calling us into, that if we're not careful, we can end up with things strewn across the lawn with no real clarity about how we're going to move it forward if we haven't truly counted the cost. What's the burden that you're praying about? Maybe you're wrestling with, maybe I'm called to the mission field. Before you launch out into that, you can begin to take those first steps and you have a grand vision, but you must start to count the cost. We're going to talk about what that looks like. It may be that you want to have a family that has your home is a home of discipleship and you have a burden to have family discipleship really moving along or to start a new business. Whether your call is big or small or anywhere in between, we're going to learn as we track along with Nehemiah this morning that we must be a people that count the cost. And so with that being said, I'm going to invite you to dig in with me to this text Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to read verses 11 through 20, and permit me to remind you what the prophet Isaiah says of the scriptures just before we read. He says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. We would be really wise to pay attention. Nehemiah 2, starting in verse 11. So I, Nehemiah, went to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. Then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me, And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. And I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate, to the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley, and I inspected the wall, and I turned back, and I entered by the valley gate, and, I, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, and the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Verse 17, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them the hand of God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, They jeered at us and they despised us. And they said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. and We, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Here in this text, we see Nehemiah doing the, the tough work of counting the cost and leaning in to what his calling is going to require of him and the people that are with him. And we're going to see three things about that. The first is this, that when we count the cost, we can honestly assess the task that is before us. 
Did you hear it at the outset of this passage that he had arrived in Jerusalem? And we know that Nehemiah was a, a Persian official and he came with guards and horses. It would have created quite a stir in this little ragtag community of Jerusalem that's living with, with broken down walls. It would have created excitement and people were talking in the streets. And for three days he interacted with people and he spent time with them. But then on the third day in the night when everybody was sleeping... He began to inspect the walls. And it says that he traveled around the southern edge of Jerusalem. This would be the portion of the wall that he would not have been able to easily inspect during the day while interacting with people. No doubt he had seen the northern piece of the wall, but he he needed to go see what is the work completely. And so he got on a donkey, and by the, the rays of moonlight with just a couple of men, he began to ride. And he rode around in the dark, looking and climbing over piles of rubble and dirt, looking at charred gates that had been left in the wake of the destruction many years before. And it says even when he got to the king's pool, he got to this place where his his donkey could no longer keep going because the piles of rubble were so massive and they were slipping down into the valley that is to the east of Jerusalem. And in that moment, Nehemiah no doubt was thinking, oh, wow. (laughs) What have I gotten myself into? This is a monumental task. You see, courage had empowered his first step and the grand vision. We're going to rebuild the walls. But it was in this moment as he was counting the cost that a game plan was being generated. If we're going to have a plan that's going to connect our first step to our grand vision, we have to begin to walk the perimeter and say, what really is this going to cost? How many hours of labor? How many people? What's going to be required? You see, courage was still required in this moment. No doubt he had a sinking feeling as he was beginning to realize, I can't even make my way all the way around because there's just so much mess and rubble and destruction. This is going to require a lot of work blood and sweat and tears from a lot of people. You see, Nehemiah in this moment was honestly assessing the task. And these are the moments in that that journey of calling. These are the moments where, where wisdom and practicality begin to inform one's calling. It begins to become earthy. It's like it sinks down into into real things. He had had a dream from 800 miles away that had been praying about and and wrestling about, but now he's looking at the piles of rock and he's beginning to realize this calling is going to require a great deal to carry out. I've experienced this similarly many times over in assessing and working with church planters through my role at Houston Church Planting Network. I will oftentimes meet a very energetic church planter who will say, I've I've quit my job. I'm called from God. I have this burden and I'm going to plant a church. I say, oh, that's exciting. That's wonderful. Now tell me about it. Now now tell me about the people you're going to reach. And what are the the challenges and the issues that they have and the reasons that they are resistant to the gospel? And what, what are the strategies you have for discipleship? And how are you going to raise up and train leaders? And what's it going to look like to build culture and to protect that culture? And all of a sudden I can see over their face this reality of, I haven't, I haven't really counted the cost on this thing. I haven't really walked the perimeter and considered what it's going to take. That, that we, if we're not careful, can have grand plans, but not have considered what it's really going to take to walk those out. This likewise can happen in, 
and family discipleship. It may be that a, a mom or a dad becomes passionate and thinks, okay, I want my home to be a hub for discipleship. We're going to release our children like arrows straight and true into the mission of God when they leave our home someday. And I love that vision. I get excited about that vision. But when, I, when I'll ask someone that's excited about that, oftentimes I'll hear, well, we're not quite sure what the plan is. And I'll say, well, where does screens fit in, screen time, and the way that that affects family culture, or the way that you're going to handle money or time or your commitment together as a family to, to worshiping together? What's the structure by which we're going to carry this out? You see, if we don't walk the perimeter, if we don't survey the landscape and say, what would it really require for this burden, for this calling to be translated into action, then, then we're left with just something that's flimsy. It may have a lot of passion and zeal because the truth is where there's, where there's calling and where there's passion or courage, but we haven't counted the cost, this becomes something that we speak really passionate, passionately about at parties or when we're hanging out with friends, but that oftentimes becomes little more than just lots of energetic chatter. It's, it's like me with my basketball goal and all of its hundreds of pieces spread out all across my yard that I'm going, I've got this great dream and plan, but I don't have the tools or the plan or the, the energy, the, the, the earthy, gritty reality in place to carry this out. You see, the next step in this journey is to assess the task as we're counting this cost. We must be a people that count the cost. What is your calling or burden? What have you been praying over the last couple of weeks as you're going on this journey with us? And now, as you start to take a first step and you envision that that end game, I want you to consider, what does it look like to pause and to walk the perimeter? To consider all of the rubble, all of the challenge, all of the heartache, and to really allow your calling to begin to become earthy and real. You see, as we count the cost, we're able to to honestly assess the task. But that's not all. When we count the cost, we can effectively call the team. We can effectively call the team because the truth is more people are going to be required to do this work for Nehemiah, and he knows that. And oftentimes when God puts a calling on our lives, we're going to need more than just our own energy and effort and passion. And I want you to pay attention to how Nehemiah calls this team. Look back with me at the text in verses 16 to 18. It says, The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet, I love this phrase, I love this. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who are going to do the work. He's already saying, I know all these people are going to have to sweat and bleed alongside of me, and they have no idea what's coming, but I do. But he hasn't spoken to them yet. And then he says in verse 17, then I said to them, And by then he means after he surveyed the rubble, after he has walked the perimeter. He says, then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken. And they said, let us rise up and they strengthened their hands for the good work. You see, what he's doing here is he's effectively calling a team. His arrival no doubt created a stir, but he didn't immediately start spewing passion on these people. 
Those first three days, he's connecting with folks. He's surveying the landscape. He knows that he has to move quickly, but he doesn't move prematurely. It's not until he has seen every inch of the wall that he stands before the people and he can look them in the eye and say, I know what this is going to require. I've surveyed the landscape. But listen, the walls are down. We are exposed to derision. That word specifically is used throughout the Old Testament. This isn't just about the people being mocked, but this is about God being mocked. That they are being derided internationally. That other nations look at them and say, look at the plight of these people. And Nehemiah, out of response to God's calling, is saying, we must rise up. And now he calls the team because his calling is earthy, gritty. That he's able to say, I know what it's going to require. But he leads them out with his own courage and calling. And his courage all of a sudden sinks down into their bones. Isn't this the beauty When you have really responded to burden in prayer and you've stepped out in courage and you've counted the cost, you can start to speak to other people in such a way that your courage becomes their courage. And they say, I'm in on this challenge. This convo, this this, this conversation between Nehemiah and these people and their response to him is incredible confirmation of his calling. It, like the conversation with the king, is confirmation. And if you are wrestling with a calling, you need to look for these confirmation points. Do the authorities in place, are they blessing this and giving the coverage that's needed? If you want to do something at work, if you want to start something in your area and you've got oversight, do you have their blessing? You see, the king gave his blessing. He has oversight and coverage. But then it's not just that. He has a team that's responding because the truth is a leader that has no followers is delusional. If if nobody rises up to go with, with Nehemiah, he's not a leader. But the truth is that God has placed this call. That call has been properly seasoned. And when it's spoken, people rise up and say, we are ready to sweat with you. We are ready to bleed with you. It reminds me of my dear friend, Anna Dickerson in Dallas. Anna several years back, had a growing burden. And her burden was for, for widows, for women and for men who were living in assisted living homes and who were struggling with loneliness, that were struggling with depression, that had just in many ways been forgotten by the world. And Anna, being a, a, a mom at home with her kids, began to realize, here I am trying to tend to my kids during the day and give them meaningful experiences. And here just across town are these men and women that are longing for human connection. And she began to connect the dots. And as she started spending time at an assisted living home and watching the way that it delighted her kids and delighted the residents, she began to realize there's a ministry here. And she started a ministry called Myrna and Me based off of her first dear friend Myrna that she was spending time with. And as she started to share this vision, after having done the work and, expect, and, and really serving the landscape of what it took, she, over the last several years, 35 other young moms with their kids have started to, to flood these assisted living homes. And they put together little beauty parlors where the kids are fixing the hairs of, of these women, fixing the hair of these women. And they, they set up nets and play balloon volleyball as the kids and the grandparents, these older individuals, are playing. And the joy in the room, you see, as Anna responded to a burden and prayed about it and stepped out in courage and then surveyed the landscape, other people ran to it. And it has borne such fruit over the last several years, even to the point where her children are in this season where COVID has affected some of these homes. Her her children 
mourn the loss of individuals and experience the full breadth of what it means to be engaged in what God is doing. What would it look like for you to walk the perimeter, to make a list of people that would need to buy in and then to begin to share your burden? Maybe it's that you need to survey what would it take for family discipleship and have an honest conversation with your spouse and saying, okay, I've really thought about this from every angle. I think this is what it looks like for us to lean in. Maybe it's that kingdom business that you're feeling called to launch out and you're thinking this doesn't seem like the right time, but you're praying and processing burden. Walk the perimeter and share your burden with people that would need to buy in. And that will be a confirmation. If they are with you, that is a com- another confirmation point that you're on the right track. You see, when we count the cost, we can assess the task, we can call the team, and then lastly, we will be able to fearlessly refute the opposition. If you've truly counted the cost, you'll be able to, to swipe away the, the, the opposition as they lean in. Look at verses 19 and 20 with me. 19 and 20 says this, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and they despised us and they said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Sanballat and the boys are are starting to nip at the heels of Nehemiah and, and the rest. And in many ways, they're like the flies at the family picnic. You've got the cheeseburgers and the hot dogs and the potato salad all set on a beautiful summer day. And just when you're about to make your plate, there's flies swarming. And you, you keep kind of doing this number as you're trying to have conversation with people and fix your plate. That in many ways, they're just kind of that, that ever-present nuisance. But I want us to, to hear this reality. Opposition is not evidence that you're going in the wrong direction. Oftentimes, it's evidence that you're going in the right direction. It's actually evidence that you're going in the right direction. One of my mentors years ago told me, Jeremiah, if you don't wake up every morning and run headlong into Satan and into his, into his forces, you need to check which direction you're running. The reality is that if I'm running with the purposes of the kingdom, I should expect that I'll run headlong into opposition. But Nehemiah beautifully and boldly, because he has counted the cost and he's operating out of calling and courage, he, just like swiping away at the, at the flies at the picnic, he stays focused with, a sw- with one move of the hand. He says, hey, guys, I'm on point here. I'm following through with what God is doing, and he keeps moving. You see, when we have counted the cost and we're responding to a call, we'll be able to quickly and fearlessly refute opposition. We will not let naysayers derail us. You see, as he's counting the cost, he's able to address the task and the team and the opposition. And just as we consider our own burdens and callings and all the different ways that God may be speaking to your heart in this particular season, that is a prime time. It is a time to rebuild. It may be that as you survey this text, and you begin to walk the perimeter of your calling and your burden, it may be that you think, wow, this is really costly. This is really heavy. To lean into to this mission or this challenge, to try to call my house church to address this real issue in our neighborhood and in our day, you're starting to realize, well, this is going to be challenging or difficult, or I don't know if I'm up for the, t- for the call. I just want to encourage you 
that the way that we have power and motivation to count the cost and to keep moving forward is not just to look to Nehemiah, but to look to the greater Nehemiah. And I want us to consider for a moment our Lord Jesus as he counted the cost for the task of redemption. Jesus was seated in the heavenlies, surrounded by the praise of angelic hosts for all of eternity. And he, together with the Father and the Spirit, began to trace out the contours of the call, of the brokenness of humanity, of all the ways that the walls are down on your life and mine, the ways that our sin has broken apart the safe place where we could be together with God. Our sin and our rebellion has left a wake of destruction. And the son traced it out and said, oh, wow, look at the cost. Look at the task. It's going to require my very life. Yet he willingly stepped into the world, stripping himself, being emptied, taking on the form of a human being and walking. And he called together a team and he began to press forward. And do you know what happened for this, this, our Savior and our King, the Lord Jesus? His task was greater than any task we've dealt with. His team was less dependable. They all left him in his moment of need. And his opposition was far more fierce than any we've ever faced. That he wasn't able to just swipe like flies at a picnic. He actually was crushed. When he was on the cross, he was ground down into rubble himself because the, the opposition, Satan and sin and the curse and the weight of the wrath of the Father on high himself all came to bear on his soul. He breathed his last and died. But that was not the end of the story. He conquered, and three days later, he came out of the grave victorious. And brothers and sisters, what I want you to hear is this, the Spirit of Christ. If you have have trusted him for salvation, to rebuild the walls of your life, the Spirit is with you. His power is with you. His resurrection power is working through you. And now we together, as the people of the resurrection, can count the cost, and we can courageously get to work. Because we have the Spirit of the Lord Jesus working powerfully in us. Let us be people who count the cost. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you were not deterred by costly work. Thank you that you came for me. You came for us. And that you have rebuilt the walls and created a safe place where we can be together with the heart of a good, good father. We are loved. It's who we are. And we rejoice in that. And I pray that that love and that safety that you have secured for us, that it would be the wind in our sails that that catapults us into assessing the task and gathering the team and facing opposition and pushing forward no matter what the cost. Help us to be a people prepared and ready to rebuild to your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.